This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, Greg McMichael, the 2018 Major League Baseball season has come to an end, but yet behind the Braves is still here, still kicking, still alive. So we're, we're not going anywhere. We're back for another episode this week. How are we feeling? Yeah, good. Great to be here and still talking baseball. It's a little bit of a letdown when uh, we saw such a good World Series and good playoff season. But uh, I'm glad we're still still doing our thing. I, I am too, and I'm Ricky Mass from MLB.com. As I mentioned, Greg McMichael, the director of Braves Alumni Relations, here on Behind the Braves, the official podcast of the Atlanta Braves. And uh, I think we'll get to the offseason. Maybe we'll get to that towards the end of today's episode. But first, let's get into our guest. This was actually, if, if we're in full disclosure, this was actually technically our first guest, even though we're, we're just now airing it. Um, your former teammate, a uh, guy, one of the guys I grew up watching along with you, Steve Avery, um, he was generous enough to to be our, our I don't want to call him our guinea pig, but he was nice enough to give us some of his time and let us let, and allowed us to to interview him for the first time out for this thing. You know, before anybody else knew what this was or had heard of it, he he was kind enough to give us uh, about 40, 45 minutes of his time, and uh, we had a great time sitting with him. Talk about uh, Steve Avery, the teammate, the competitor, and, and the guy that you uh, you played alongside in the 90s. Yeah, it was great to have Steve here kind of in an extended stay. He came in for about a week. There were a couple charity events he was involved in with us. His son works for us, so we got to – um have him here and say hey why you're uh why you're here you, you got some extra time why don't you come be on the show and and i'm sure he didn't know what in the world he was getting himself into but when i think about steve i think about um this is something that comes up in every fierce competitor i think about a good teammate i think about a guy whose career was cut short because of injury and when i look back on his numbers and i look back on his career he had four years that were as good as any. I think about, um, you know, he averaged over six innings to start for those four, uh, I think, five years. He had 35 starts. He was an all-star, 93, close to 100 wins, I think 96 wins for his career. He was really one of those guys that we all thought if, you know, Maddox and Smoltz, and Glavin were going to be Hall of Famers. Avery was just as much a part of that and probably had the stuff to go along to be a part of that group as well. And for four years, you know, he proved it. I also think about Steve as a postseason star. He was a guy that you wanted to hand the ball to, just like John Smoltz, to, to pitch in the postseason. And when I look back on his stats for the postseason, he was the NLCS 
you know, MVP in 91. When I think about it, I was I was a fan like you, even though I was playing the minor leagues. I was watching the Braves team in 91-92 pitch against Toronto, pitch against the Twins, and he was a guy that, man, you wanted on the mound. He was he threw hard. He was a lefty. He was a little unconven- uh, unconventional. And he had a big breaking ball. And so he was just a guy that you that you wanted on the mound. And as you're going to hear him say here, he liked to he liked to be aggressive out there. His mindset was he liked to pitch mad. I mean, that's a, again, I'm not to be a spoiler here, but that's something he talks about in our interview with him. Is that was just his persona or how he liked to be on the mound? Is he needed to be that or he wanted to be fired up uh, like that out there? And I'd think I'm glad that you brought up the, the big three there with Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz because I think you and I were talking about this the other day. Me growing up, I, I still remember how great Steve was in his prime and how vital he was to that rotation. Those, the other three guys, understandably so, kind of get all the – get mentioned first now, which you understand because they're Hall of Famers and they, they, they deserve that. They earn that. But Steve was – had it not been for injuries, just as you said, was very, very much right there on the cusp of, of – perhaps had injuries not hurt – you know, cut short the career, he could have been right there with them. And But what we were talking about the other day was – I was kind of lamenting, I guess. I was like, I wonder if people, how many people remember or truly know how good he was back in the day. But then on the flip side of it, something that made me feel kind of good about this was we were walking by the clubhouse store uh, on our way down to the Alumni Lounge here today to record. And you can go in there still now in 2018 and you can buy a Steve Avery jersey like all these years later. And that's right up there with the Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz's. So to me that means people are still remembering because – Look, business is business. We aren't going to sell something if people aren't going to buy it. People are still buying Steve Avery gear, Braves gear in 2018, and that just makes me feel good because I'm like, good. People people still remember and still know how, how good Steve Avery was. Yeah, how about that? Uh, I think there's something to be said for when a organization makes the turn. There was a dramatic point there in 91 going from last to first. You make the playoffs. There's something special about that team, and I think all those guys that were on that team, Braves fans, Braves country remembers them. And Steve was obviously a huge part of that. I mean, he was five and three in the playoffs with a 2.9 ERA for his career, and a huge game uh, win for us in in Cleveland when we played and when we won it in '95. And then, of course, all those big games he pitched in in '91 and '92. So I'm not surprised. Steve was also just kind of a baby. I mean, he was 18 years old. He We got drafted the same time in the 88 draft. He was the third pick by the Braves, but he was straight out of high school. And you look at his baseball card, and I remember it specifically because I probably have some of them. He just looks like he's 16 years old, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, he's got a little bit of a baby face anyway. I mean, he's always looked really young, even though he's probably – he's a little bit younger than me, but he looks about 15, 20 years younger than than me. And so I think there's just part of that, and he's got sort of an you know sort of an endearing personality, and uh, but you know you, you made the point about him being super intense. He is not that way in in person, you know, off the field. And I think we talk a little bit about that, but on the field he was you know locked in, super fierce competitor. But off the field, you never know it. Yeah, he was. You know, this was my first time meeting him when we sat down and talked to him. I mean, he's not soft spoken. But just mm-hmm. kind of, just kind of, just laid back. I think is probably a good yeah. way to put it, you know. And you'll you'll hear that from him. So it. One note about this: this was recorded, as you're going to hear, just a couple of days after the Ronald Acuna, Jose mm-hmm. Urania incident here at SunTrust Park. So we we got into that and the unwritten rules and all that. And also, 
right after the uh, the Braves alumni home run derby, which Steve not only participated in but was one of the stars of. He was my pick. Yeah, yeah, and he was. Uh, it came down to, if I remember right, it's been a little while now, but yeah, it came down to him and Frank Gore yeah. in a in a playoff oh, yeah, to win yeah. the thing, and, and there he was almost about won it. Four or five, you know. Extra innings of play. I mean, they just kept swinging. They got three three pitches each, and they he kept going. Kept going, yeah. And he's still uh, – he, he is kept in shape. I'll put it that way. He, he looks uh, looks great. So, hope you're going to look forward to hearing from uh, Steve Avery. And, uh, well, let's go to him right now. You know what's interesting is that I was going back and looking um, – so many times I'm asked for bios or, you know, this guy who can speak or we're doing a meet and greet, we're doing autographs, all that kind of stuff. And so, so many times they ask me for a bio. So I have to go back and I'll create a bio for you and I'll create it for Clancy and, you know, some, some of the guys that maybe people don't know as much around here or obviously they know you, they know the name. They know um, Mark Lemke, but they really don't maybe not know the specifics. So I'm always going back. It's curious. I'm always curious to see what I don't remember. So, for instance, you know, like when I was looking back at your career, 11 years, obviously uh, the teams you played, I didn't realize you ended with Detroit. Right. And, um, and then looking back at playoffs and your batting average and all that kind of stuff, it's just it, – and then I all of a sudden go back and think of stories and think about – oh, I remember when Abe was doing this, and I remember when this game or that game. And um, so do you ever go back and look at your – because, you know, you're on YouTube. We're all on YouTube, and I can go back, and I was watching you pitch. Right. And I was thinking about, okay, he had this big curveball, but he didn't have a changeup. And then one of the first things I pulled up was you striking out Brett Boone on a changeup in Cincinnati. I'm like going, that was a bad changeup, but he was totally – fluke because right. he had no idea you were throwing a changeup. Yeah, and I <laughs> I, uh, I actually started mostly fastball, curveball, and then as my career, as my fastball kind of dwindled a little bit, I went more with my uh, with my changeup just because my breaking ball kind of got big with the losing some arm speed. So I actually felt a lot more comfortable with my changeup than any other pitch later mm -hmm. in my career, but I uh, was definitely more effective when I was a fastball, curveball guy. Um, but it is a long time ago. You know, it's easy to forget a lot of things. Um, I always tell people I was, you know, I came up at 20. So, you know, things happen a lot faster at that age. You're kind of, uh, you don't really sit back and appreciate things the way I think I would now. Um, but just remembering back on the good times, you know, being down here helps a lot, seeing guys and you kind of reminisce a little bit. And mm -hmm. that's, a, that's the best part about coming down to Atlanta to visit. Well, we had, we had conversations about the changeup when you were kind of trying to make a comeback. Right. So in uh, late or early 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah. You were um, trying to make. I think you would. You have two years off or something like that, and you tried to come back. Yeah, I had surgery in '99, and then I tried to come back with the Braves in 2000, and just didn't work out. I ended right. up getting hurt again toward the end of that year. Um, but you were home. throwing a lot more changeups at that lot, point. Yeah, well, even my <laughs> fastball was a changeup, yeah, unfortunately. That's right. So. Um, you know, I kind of healed up a little bit after that, but never really uh, recovered fully from the surgery. I just, uh, and it wasn't so much my stuff. I mean, I could have got by with even the stuff I had, but I felt like I lost control of my arm, hmm. um, which I, I I tend to think shoulders a little bit tougher than maybe the Tommy Johns that, mm -hmm. you know, everyone has. Um, I always say the elbow is just kind of along for the ride, but the shoulder is what's driving everything. And, um, you know, looking back, I wish I would have probably had elbow problems before shoulder, but um, it's just what it is, and, and uh, you know, I did the best I could with what I had. 
So it really made you appreciate how I pitched and how <laughs> challenging it was. Absolutely. <laughs> I didn't have that 95 in the tank, right? <laughs> yeah, well, there was a lot more guys like uh, like that back then. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if we'd even get a chance now. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't have got a chance to come back if, if it was today's game. I know. We've got position players coming in now throwing 91, 94 just the yeah. other night here. I mean, it's, it's crazy how that's, that's changed with yeah. today's game. Well, which makes you think the gun might be a little bit uh, juiced up from our time in the game. But, you know, still there's the amount of guys throwing hard, I think, are more. But there was still guys back then that really brought it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And, you know, it's all relative. I don't care if it's Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds. I mean, the best player at that point versus the best player at this point and the best player in, you know, 20 years from now, it's, it's still the best. I right. Mean, it's just you can't. You know, there's just different circumstances you can't change. But but they, a lot of these guys, especially the young pitchers, what I've seen, I've been in the instruction business for a long time just, just teaching kids. They've benefited from a lot of, a lot of big league players that have gone back and, and have been instructing these kids at a very young age. So I see a lot of kids that are polished a lot earlier than we were because they benefited from the training facilities and the East Cobbs of the world and, and Lake Point up here in North Georgia where they've had a lot of instruction and a lot of games that now they seem to be getting hurt easier, right? but they, they seem to be a lot more polished earlier on. Yeah. When they're getting the instruction and properly handled, that's when I think the, you know, the best situation for the kids is, um, I was lucky. My dad was a, um, minor league pitcher. So I always felt like I had a pitching coach at home and, and, uh, you know, that was a huge benefit to me growing up because, I really only played about 15 games of baseball during the year in Michigan, so uh, it wasn't like we were getting 60, 70 games like kids do now. Um, but I did play a lot more, you know, just pick up ball, just go out and play strikeout. And um, I always tell people I threw more pitches than, you know, they put pitch counts on everyone. I threw more pitches than any kid would be allowed to throw nowadays, and I felt like it benefited me. So I've never really been a huge proponent. I mean, if, if, if you watch the pitchers closely and, and handle them right, um, I think pitch counts just a number. I agree, I, and I think you hit it on the head where there were pickup games. You don't see that anymore. Everything has to be organized. By the time they're three years old, you have to organize a practice. You have to organize a game. Where we didn't grow up that way. Right. I mean, we made our own games up. So we were outside playing all the time. Whether we were throwing rocks or sticks or balls or foot, you know, footballs, basketballs, whatever it was, we were kind of creating that, and we had a lot of. Just, I think, instincts that were developed uh, throughout our young young age. I don't see that now because, I, I mean, like I said, I, I've been teaching since 2000, and I see a lot of kids that come through, that have come through my, my uh, instruction that don't have many instincts because they just have not had that experience of just going out and just playing pickup ball. Right. And then, therefore, when it's organized, I think there's more strain, more stress on the arm because they're – it's organized for them so much that they just don't they don't have the same type of of feel for the game that that we had and I'm sure the people that you know that played you know that were playing when we were coming up were probably the same same thing about us but I just noticed that there is a difference in these kids that were coming through my program that the just instincts weren't there like we had yeah and and then when you guys were coming along, I mean, I assume you were both multi-sport athletes growing up, high school, and that that sort of thing. And that seems to, that's one thing even I've noticed. I've got younger siblings who played sports, and 
the pressure even for them and they weren't going to go play in college or anything but the pressure for them to choose one earlier on like earlier in high school was was there for them too so i that's something that's that's made a big change from how the game used to be to how it is now right do you see that up in michigan we get asked that all the time uh just you know should you play more than one sport and and my answer is always yes i mean i played basketball um i played football growing up um i actually ran cross country when i stopped playing football just to keep busy but i just felt like you needed a break from baseball and and not just to heal your arm up but to kind of make you excited to play baseball i mean if you're playing 12 months a year it's just kind of another day but, you know, when I put my glove away in August up in Michigan, um, you know, once March or April came around, I was excited to get my glove out, back out, you know. So I think, you know, when you're doing it year-round, you don't have the same kind of intensity and excitement. Well, probably you don't experience the same that we do down here because the weather's so much nicer that they can literally play three seasons down here. They can play in the spring, they can play in the summer, they can play in the fall where you do have to put your glove away because you can't play up there because it's snowing. Well, they're trying. I mean, they're they, build, they're okay. building domes. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I mean, it's it's out of control, and uh, you know, multi-sport domes where they can do soccer and baseball. But um, you know, they'll run the fall ball all the way until it snows, and and then start in the dome. So wow, uh, they're doing everything they can to make it year-round. But I, uh, you know, my teams, I always make sure they shut it down for at least three or four months. Well, we have another issue, and that's the coaches won't let them play more than one sport because they want to control them all year. Are you seeing that up there in Michigan as well? Yeah, and I think that's more um, at the high school level uh, rather than the younger level. Um, hockey is big in Michigan. Mm. I think it, hockey is maybe the one sport that they try to control everything because it, it can pop up at different times of the year. But like you said, baseball is more uh, tougher to go one sport just because it's it's not weather. Uh, um, it's not able to do otherwise. Mm. So are you coaching your, your youngest? Is His name is what? Owen. Owen, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's 14. Uh, going into next year, he'll be a 14-U player. So I've coached him since he was uh, a 7-U player, <laughs> which is kind of bad because I've always, you know, thought it was funny that you play 7- or 8-U tra- travel ball. But uh, it's just the way it is now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I tried Little League, and the, the, uh, just the level of play didn't, didn't – uh, I feel like it didn't push him mm-hmm. enough, you know, and, and uh, not that he was a great player at the time, but – just most of those kids didn't really want to be there um you know <laughs> they uh their parents throw them out there and, and the good thing about travel is you know that the parents are they want them there and the kids you know want to be there so it uh, it helps make coaching a whole lot easier sure and what does uh, he got a what is he a pitcher he's a pitcher first baseman okay. um my older son evan is uh working with the braves this year he was a left-hand pitcher pitched a little bit in college and then my daughter uh she played soccer growing up and and uh Tried softball a little bit, but didn't really uh, get much out of it. Yeah, I think I've seen Evan walking around uh, the halls here. Is he, a, is he a trainee this year? He is, yep. He's uh, he's loving it. Um, you know, like I told him, it's it's uh, been my fa- favorite city that I've visited and, and lived in. And um, He was in Colorado Springs last year, and then uh, to get to spend time here this year is, uh, has been great. And it allows me to come back down and visit more often, too. Yeah, well, we, we love it because we get to see you more often. Yeah. So what kind of coach are you? Um, as far as how I run the team, I mean, yeah. Are you a good coach? Are you um, are you I'm, tough on them or what? Uh, I expect them to play hard. I guess is about it. I mean, I, I expect them to pay attention and play hard, but I don't uh, I don't push too hard if they make mistakes. You know, mental mistakes kind of bother me a little bit, but um, errors don't bother me. Um, I'm not going to throw kids. 
you know, too much to where they're going to be, you know, playing, pitching on back-to-back days or mm. throwing ex- excessive innings because the biggest part of the way they set up tournaments now is you can play six games, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, six, seven games. So on a 10- or 12-person team, I mean, there's just not enough innings to fill that weekend up. So, you know, if I had one suggestion, I would try to figure out a way to – you can have the same amount of teams, but just don't let as many teams get to the finals and – uh you know, try to cut the games down on the weekends. Yeah, they promise them so many games, and right. you know, you pay a certain amount of money. Yeah, unless you get to an older age where you have pitchers only, um, you know, you're going to be using your whole roster for sure on yeah. the mountain. Uh, so you're coaching now. I'm curious. Maybe that's a good segue into um, mound visits with Leo Mazzoni. And yeah. um, what uh, <laughs> what were some some? I mean, well, let's go with the serious side first. I mean, you have a coach like that. I mean, what are there things that you take from coaches you had like Leo that you still implement today with your kids? Well, I've always told people. I mean, Leo was was you know a great pitching coach, but he was always on your side. I mean, it, you could have messed up and done something stupid, but he was going to defend you to everyone else, whether you wanted him to or not. So, um, I guess loyalty kind of was was his strength. Um, another strength he had was recognizing um, difference in uh, mechanics so like um, if I was doing anything different he he watched so closely that he could pick out the smallest uh, mechanical Mm -hmm. error that I had and uh, you know when you talk about visits I don't know if you're kind of segueing into my visit in Colorado but um, (laughs) you know he I know he tells that story all the time but I uh, I was pitching in Colorado and I had been struggling and, and I hit two of the first four batters which you know you guys can appreciate after the other night it does happen people do get hit so um, I wasn't trying to, just got a little wild, hit two guys, and uh, I, you know, I think it was the two of the first three, and he comes jumping out of the dugout, and I, I kind of brushed him aside, like, hey, you know, go back, I'm fine. It just, I let a couple pitches get away. So when I kind of waved my arm, I was like, I probably shouldn't have done that. So I, I knew as he kept coming out there, he was getting madder and madder, and he, you know, Leo's only like four foot three, so <laughs> I'm standing on top of the mound, so he's already barely above my waist, and just, you know yelling at me and, and pushing me back off the mound a little bit and uh you know I just said hey Leo I'm, I'm fine or whatever and then uh, I did end up apologizing to him obviously I didn't mean to make it seem like I didn't want him to come out there just I didn't feel like it was necessary at the time yeah but there was some class I mean we always knew he hated to come out there at the mound because you you were super intense right I mean you're if people meet you now they think oh Steve you know what a what a laid-back guy and he's yeah. so fun and nice and everything and I'm like, yeah, you just didn't want to go talk to him while he was on the mound. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, you know, that's that's how you, you know, when you're around everyone, uh, you kind of see what they're like and you know what to, you know, because my catchers actually knew to kind of make me mad. I like to pitch mad, so um, I just felt like I, I threw better. Um, you know, so Mike Heath and, and uh, Charlie O'Brien and Ole didn't really do it because he was such a, a nice, ki- <laughs> no, nice person. He couldn't yeah. get himself to, but. You know, those guys would come out and say stuff to me to get me a little riled up, and it, I felt like it helped, you know, and that, that kind of relationship with your catcher yeah. and teammates is important. Um, you know, Smoltz, he wanted to talk to you the whole game. He didn't care, and then he would get intense, you know, in the bigger games. But, you know, Maddox, he, he didn't mind being talked to, but I just kind of wanted to stay off to the side and, and uh, you know, kind of be quiet for the whole game. Was there was there a go-to uh, thing that your catchers would – was there a certain subject or, or something they knew they could hit on that would really uh, get you mad? You know, they would just, uh, yeah, they would they poke at you, you know, nothing too serious. But if I miss, you know, four straight or something, they'd come out there and just, you know, tell me to get my stuff together and, and uh, you know, nothing too bad. I remember one game in uh, Pittsburgh. Well, you know, the weird thing is I like to relax before the game. So I'd, I would, a lot of times I would take a nap 
and uh, maybe you know 45 minutes from before the game, get up and start getting ready. So uh, I remember one game, Mike Heath came up and gave me a wet willy while I was sleeping, and that oh. one, that <laughs> one got me good. And uh, so he woke me up, and uh, that was one of the better games I pitched. <laughs> well, people don't realize too that um, you know if you looked at the style of the staff at that time. You probably worked the quickest. Yeah. I mean, there were sometimes like you know, I was like, oh God, was he? He's on speed. I mean, he's working so fast. Yeah. But you liked it that way. You you were up tempo and pound the zone, get the ball back, getting up on the mound. Whereas everybody else, you know, Glavin was a little bit more deliberate, lip, deliberate, slower. Maddox was kind of that way too. Smolty was kind of in between you guys, but you right. were always like, boom, boom, boom. I gotta, I wanna get the ball and go, get the ball and go. Yeah. And um, that was always interesting to me because we didn't have many, there weren't many guys that were like that. Right. And, um, you know, part of it was some of the umpires. Uh, Frank Poley, I can remember every time he had me, you know, I'd walk out there and he'd be like, you know, work fast today, Dave. And uh, sometimes he'd be calling the pitch. I told, uh, we ran into Randy Marsh the other day. <laughs> And he would be calling the pitch before across the plate. And, now, you know, he said, the faster you work, the more strikes you're going to get. So I don't know if it was, like, kind of early in my career that he said that. I mean, I always worked fast. But, you know, after that, I tend to even work a little bit quicker. Yeah, those umpires are human too, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, yep. they would always uh, – you could tell what kind of mood they were in as well. Yeah, they had dinner reservations sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I went back and looked at that, um, you know, we weren't um, – we weren't there. It was 97 when I was looking at the Marlins game. And the guy behind the plate was calling everything. Right. That was just crazy. I'm yeah. like, oh, is this a joke? That was the Little League World Series uh, zone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they were that bad. The, the, the Le, uh, Levon Hernandez yeah. game. Yeah. 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 That was uh, – I mean, I think the guys were – they weren't They weren't mad. They weren't uh, – because you would think they would just blow up and start getting mad at Eric Gregg. But – they literally, I think they were stunned. Right. The ball was literally, you know, two feet outside, and yeah. he was calling it. It didn't. I don't care where it was, he was calling it a strike. Right. Yeah, they were just unhittable, so he just yeah, they were shake shaking, <laughs> shaking their head and moving on. <laughs> but, you know, Leo was, was kind of a fiery guy, and he coached that way, and he would get, you know, he, he would get real excited. And, and so I can imagine with your intensity on the mound and his intensity that that didn't, you know, so I remember you guys talking – those don't, didn't always look like they were, you know, uh, really nice, calm conversations. Right. Like you see, like people like to want to portray sometimes about how do you get the pitcher to calm down. And that didn't seem like that you guys, that worked for you all. Yeah, but I think Leo was good at not, he knew where to go with it. I mean, he, he wouldn't, you know, the only time he got fired was when I needed it. And then, mm -hmm. you know, there were other times, a lot of times he was just coming up asking how I was doing and, and uh, just normal pitcher you know, uh, pitching coach stuff. But uh, there were times where I think he maybe felt that I needed a little kick too. So um, that was probably those times. Yeah. Just just asking as a fan, because, I mean, obviously you guys played. I mean, I assume that a mound visit is pretty much all just uh, – that's more of the coach reading the the situation in terms of your emotions and how to best – how he's, try, he's just trying to guide your emotions, right? I mean, it's hardly – it's not a mechanical or call this pitch here kind of thing, right? It's mostly just – managing emotions am i correct in that assumption yeah and there's there's you know most of the time they come out of there's a lot of times they just say i'm gonna give, get, give you a break give you you know let you catch your breath for a second i did work fast like max said and you know sometimes i probably work too fast and you just you know slow down just a little bit you know kind of get your uh, get your stuff straight again 
Well, I didn't get mound visits because the only mound visit I got was from Bobby. Right. He was taking yeah. me out, right? They it, weren't coming to ask me how I felt. He was already turning the light bulb. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, relievers don't get mound visits. I mean, we right. they're, they're making changes. And they're not asking. But, yeah, that was always um, – it was always interesting to me. the the biggest The biggest thing that you just had to remember is that when Bobby comes out, you just hand in the ball and you walk off the mound. Right. And I, I made that mistake earlier in my career in college, and I, I don't know if we talked about this, but when I was at University of Tennessee, you know, I was trying to find my way, and I was a starter, and the coach comes out to take the ball out, and I'm like, "Why are you taking me out?" And I just dead silence. And I'm thinking in my mind, take the shortstop out. out. He just made two errors. Why are you taking me out? You know. Right. And so uh, he doesn't say anything. He just says, "Give me the ball." So I give him the ball. And the next day, you know, we get back home. He calls me in the office and just reams me, reams me for about 30 minutes right. on on my ego and everything. And so I learned very very early on that you know you just hand the ball. It, that's not the place to discuss what what's going on in the game at that point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He probably told you if you were getting more outs, he wouldn't have had to take <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, in light of what we've got going on here, there's been a lot of talk about Ronald Acuna getting drilled the other night, which you were probably at the game, right? That was the one game I didn't come oh, to this Oh, you didn't week, come yeah. to that one. Well, you probably saw the highlights of it. You know, first pitch of the game, drills him. And, um, and so that brings up the old question, us being pitchers and – if you look at the history of the game, that's been a part of the game. And, you know, all the hitters are all obviously upset, just like they were in our day when every time they got drilled, they got upset. And right. and uh, so I want to read a quote, and I want you to comment on it, because I think this is – I went back, and this is hilarious. And I was at this game. We were, we were on the team together in 96. And um, so uh, it says, uh, it's going to end when I get him back, he said. When I see him in pain, like I was in pain Monday night, when I see that, then I'll be satisfied. Sooner or later, he's going to pay. What goes around comes around. I don't want anyone else to get hurt. I just want him to be punished, and he will be. He hurt me. I'm going to hurt him. That's how it's got to be. I'll never forget. I don't care how long it takes, even if I have to do it away from baseball in the parking lot. We're out in the street. <laughs> you remember that quote? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> Jose Vizcaino, New York Mets, June twelfth, nineteen ninety six. So, tell me, tell me about that because I know we've we've discussed it before, but um, that that quote <laughs> was yeah. hilarious. Reading it now, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously there's times where you're pitching and you're going to get frustrated. I gave up a home run to uh, Ryan Thompson, and I uh, I turned around and Jose Vizcaino was on second base, but. As he was going to third, he was basically Carlton Fisking the whole way down the third, from second to third, like jumping up and down with his hands in the air all the way to third base. So I'm watching the home run go out to left field, and I'm watching him celebrate like he did something. I'm like, you know, you weren't the one that even hit it. So I actually walked all the way to the plate to get a ball, and I was just going to tell him, hey, I don't, you know, and he ran right by me like I wasn't even there. So I got a new ball, and I said, you know, what are you doing? And uh, he didn't even look at me. So I'm like, all right. So next time he came up, I threw a pitch inside that I didn't mean to hit him with, and it maybe hit him a little bit. <laughs> right? That's the that's the proper approach to take. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I wasn't trying to, you know, I hit him below the waist. It wasn't, you know, anything where I'm trying to injure him bad. But he didn't end up getting hurt pretty good. And, um, you know, the funny thing is that uh, I'm, a, I'm a starting pitcher, so I know I'm coming up. I know I'm going to get hit. So, you know, that was what he was talking. That quote there is they had their chance to get me. I came up to bat. They threw two balls at me, missed twice, um, and then they got warned. 
So Dallas Green came out of the dugout, and uh, as he was yelling at the umpire that they got warned because they didn't get their chance to get me, and I said, you, you know, you had your chance. So uh, as Dallas was walking away, he said, uh, you know, don't worry, we're going to get you. And I said, well, come get me now. <laughs> so He's not a little guy. Right. So he started walking toward me, and obviously his catcher had to protect his manager. So Todd Hunley at the time grabbed me. The bench is cleared. Uh, but the, my favorite part of the whole story is that, okay, I know they can't get hit now, so uh, nobody gets thrown out because there was nothing what, nothing too bad. Uh, next pitch, I hit 410 feet off the center field wall. And as I was running the first, I was yelling in their dugout, and uh, I, mer- I barely made it to the second base. I mean, the ball, I thought it was gone for sure. So hit the top of the fence, carry them sideways, and I still had to sprint the second base just to make it. But, um, you know, it's just one of those times where, you know, uh, something on the field made me angry, and, and uh, you know, I decided to do something about it, I guess. Do you remember what you were yelling? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I can't really. I don't know what rating that's this podcast G-rating. is. Yeah. G-rating. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, good. Okay. A couple Just of things. Curious. But, yeah, but the, the point is they, they did have their chances to get me yeah. back. I mean, and I would have totally accepted those consequences. I mean, I was willing to get hit and, and move on. It would have been over in my mind after that. And, uh you know, they just didn't take advantage of the situation. Yeah. In light of the, the Acuna situation, which as we're recording this, this just happened a, a couple of nights ago. I mean, is that that that's that school of thought? Do you guys think that that's something that's changing now in the game? I mean, the, there was a lot of that situation the other night made a lot of headlines that night and the next morning. So, I mean, do you think that that way of thinking like the, the unwritten rules, is that being are those changing, do you think, or is it being phased out, or do you think that's something that's always going to be there? No, Snit's old school. That's that's not going to change. Yeah. I mean, they're going to get him sometime, and uh, you know, I'm sure he's expecting to if he if he knows the game at all. But you know, I think nationally it was kind of you know a little bit blown out of proportion just because the at bat was so um, watched. I mean, he'd hit homeward in three straight games, so everyone's wanting to see if he can do it again. If that happened in the sixth inning, you probably wouldn't even notice that. It was just everyone was kind of focused on that at bat. So it's probably the wrong time to do it if you're going to try to send a message. Yeah, and the one thing that has changed in the game nowadays, these guys don't expect to get hit because they don't even expect for you to pitch inside. But, I, you know, if you look at the history of the game over the last 100 years, guys, pitchers were knocking guys down all the time if they felt like they were too comfortable. I mean, look at Don Drysdale. I mean, look at Nolan Ryan. Look at Bob Gibson. If they thought you were – you wouldn't even act like you were digging in your back foot because they would flip you. Now, I don't think any of us can read the pitcher's mind on whether he really was trying to drill him or was he trying to flip him. Flip him meaning throw it up and in, you know, make the guy move his feet, knock him down, whatever it is to send a message that you're just not going to sit up there and, and bang balls off the wall without any sort of consequence. That part of the game has changed. So I think guys, the hitters have been so protected. Think about it. You can't take a guy out of second base. You can't take a guy out at home. You can't throw inside. They give a warning every time, you know, if somebody – so they're just not expecting it. Guys are diving all over the plate. They don't expect any pitcher to throw inside because they don't do it anymore. So I think that's part of it. And so when all of a sudden somebody gets drilled, it's national news. Whereas, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it probably would have never been. That right. just was kind of part of the game. So I think that has definitely changed in the game today as opposed to, you know, even before we started playing. And I know no one loved it, but, I mean, he didn't throw it his head. He threw it as, you know, his ribs, which is, you know, kind of a normal practice if uh, if you're trying to go at uh, somebody, you know, you just make it make sure you keep it away from their head, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's just it's so interesting for me to just to in any profession, particularly sports, to, to hear like the, the, there's this code and this language that's just understood and it's it's self regulation. So it's just interesting to me to hear that it's that it, that's how it works and that it's something that I guess it's something maybe it's going to evolve a little bit, but it's it's hard to see it ever really truly going away because people their emotions are always going to run high and there's. Yeah. There's always going to be somebody that bat flips it or something that, that angers a pitcher or vice versa, however you want to look at it. So I, I, it's just it's interesting to see how it's. Uh, well, the look on Real Muto's face. That I'm said sure a lot. He that expected lot. to get drilled because usually when one of your best players gets hit, you should hit one of their best players. And um, But the good thing about the National League is that if you really think that a pitcher is punking you, then you'll just wait till he comes up to bat. And yeah. then that's when you got your chance. And um, so that's the good thing about the National League, if you really felt like that. But, but I tell you, it would cause more friction in the clubhouse if you drill the best player. If we would have drilled Real Muto, you know, pretty close uh, to the, you know, his next at bat, then there would have been a lot of friction between him and his pitcher. And what? that would have caused more problems. Interesting. Well, now what? Now what? Right, so with the Marlins as it stands right now, you know they're not really they're not really playing for anything beyond the regular season. The Braves, as as of right now, definitely are. So there's a series in Miami coming up next week. I mean, with the with with our team having something on the line, does that then affect when the retaliation comes? Is that something that could be next season as opposed to next week, or or does that factor into it at all? I'm sure it does in Snit's mind, and you know he's he's going to have to play it that way, but. Um... You know, you, you just uh, you don't want to lose a game trying to get revenge on somebody. So I guess you know if one of the games gets out handed either way, then that's probably where you're going to see it happen. Yeah, it would be difficult if you were neck and neck, and and all of a sudden you know you have a chance to lose your best pitcher just because this guy comes up in the first inning, and if you your bullpen's got to carry the weight, he gets kicked out, and you got eight innings you got to make up through the bullpen, you know. That's why the manager gets paid a lot of money. You know, he has to make those kind of decisions. And that's really difficult. In my position as a relief pitcher, it was hard for me to take care of that kind of business late in the game because the game was always on the line. But there was probably one instance, and that was my rookie year, and I, I was thinking about this, Abe, because my first ever spring training, big league spring training game was when you got knocked out early. Mm -hmm. And Bobby put me in just as a fluke because I got to go on a road trip. So that was the first game it was in, in, uh, in Port St. Lucie. My first big league game, was when you got knocked out early <laughs> against the Cubs okay. uh, in 93. And I made my major league debut. And it was like, you know, I was in my, my first couple months, I was just a middle guy. And um, so it's interesting that, uh, but one of the times we were in St. Louis early on in my career, um, I remember I'm in the bullpen. In the bullpen, sometimes you don't notice everything that's going on that, that you would if you're sitting on the bench. So I come, I get called in about the fifth inning, and I come running by Terry Pendleton, who was at third base, and Terry looked at me, he goes, you better get that guy. And I said, okay, and I just kind of keep running, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, all right, who am I supposed to get? What am I supposed to do? And, you know, because I knew what that meant, but I didn't know, you know, what, what caused that or who it was or anything like that. And I just figured that Dam Damon Burial was catching. I, I figured that he was the one that was going to let me know. So I start pitching, and I, I think I get the next two guys out. I, I get in the dugout, and I go up to Terry. I said, Terry, um, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed <laughs> to get? He goes, oh, sorry, all right. When the pitcher comes up, I want you to drill him. And so um, he was coming up first next. So I get out there, throw my warm-up pitches, and here comes the, the pitcher for the Cardinals up. And, and I throw a ball. I think it must have been middle in. 
and he fouls it off. And I'm thinking, oh, no, that was terrible. I'm glad he didn't hit that. And I felt there were about seven daggers going into my back from all the position players. Now, I, I didn't know the history. I went back and looked at Glavin's trying to hit Dale Murphy right. in Philadelphia, yeah. which was there was a history of the, the position players felt like that the pitchers weren't protecting protecting them, meaning if you know some guy gets knocked down, then we need to knock down one of their guys. And this had gone on for a couple of years. So I, I was coming in as a rookie in 93, didn't really know that history, but pretty quickly figured it out that uh, the position players didn't like it when you didn't do something to protect them. And I knew that. I played baseball long enough. So the next pitch, after feeling the wrath and this in, you know, behind me, the next pitch I threw right in his ear hole and uh, didn't hit him. But he flipped on his back. His helmet went off. His bat went flying. And and, uh, and and really just laid him out on the ground. So I go in after the inning, uh, get three outs, and go in after. And, I, and you would think that I just I just threw a no hitter because the, the guys were all <laughs> high fiving me in the dugout. But you know, there's just something. It, you know, we talk about what is Snick going to do. Sometimes you might have to sacrifice the short term to gain the respect and of the team. You know, right. to gain the respect of those guys that are out there playing day in and out. They they may be willing to. To, to lose a game knowing that you've got their back and you're willing to do that and you're willing to protect them because if they have 20 games to play, they're going to play those other 19 games a lot harder knowing that you've done your job to help them or they may stretch out a little bit further, play a little bit harder for you knowing that you took care of business. Yeah. And is that – you said Terry is basically the one that came and told you, you know, you need to get oh, this Oh, that was guy. TP, yeah. Yeah, so is that generally kind of how it goes? The veteran guy is the one that just makes makes a call on that? I mean, I know it's not like you're just going to sit around and, and, and you know, map it out and plan it out, but yeah. I assume it's, it's the, the, right. the leaders in the clubhouse are kind of the ones making well, the call. I think part of the problem is that when Acuna got hit the other night, he just sit, he just stood there and grabbed his elbow. I think if he would have started sprinting out to the mound, both benches would have cleared and they would have taken care of business. And, and But because he just kind of stood there, everybody else just kind of stood there and it really took Snit to kind of take the charge. And then I know uh, Ender went out there too and then it just kind of, this was kind of weird where he didn't, most time your reaction is boom, I'm, right. I'm ticked off, I'm heading to the mound. But that didn't happen, so I think that made it a little funky. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think it could come from the manager. It could come, I know uh, David, you know, DJ asked me to hit somebody in Houston. And so I think it could kind of come from anywhere. But um, like Max said, you know, it's, uh, it's, if you're expecting those guys to, to run into walls for you, you better protect them too. Yeah, I think um, probably one of the thing I one of the things I remember, and you can tell me if I'm correct on this. So, you did you and Merck have the same type of car, a Lexus yeah. SC300? Yep, and Pete Smith. And Pete Smith, yeah. all three of you. Right. And um, so I know you were kind of, um, and typically these are the starting pitchers because they got so much time on their hands. They're the ones playing golf. They're the ones doing all the pranks. So Nagel. Ave, um, Smoltzy, you know, guys. So, but you were a big, you were a big prankster. Yeah, at times. <laughs> yeah, and you loved getting Dion. Yeah, right. Yeah. Dion was always a good target. Grip right. was a good target. Yeah, yeah. Clancy <laughs> always went after Grip. <laughs> Grip still. We come to the stadium and here, and we have things, and he still gets it. It's just yeah. funny. But, but I remember some sort of some story. Did you guys have races to get to the? get to the field oh yeah yeah racing home after uh you know we well back then they didn't really play getaway day games so you know now they basically play all day games when you're when the team's leaving town so we would play night games you know sometimes on the west coast get home at like four or five in the morning so 
we would there'd be no one on the road and, and you could race home i mean the traffic here is so bad a lot of times you know you can't do that anymore but um my favorite place was san diego because uh, the clubhouse you'd walk down this tunnel but um, the bench you could see the players feet from where you were walking out of the clubhouse so they didn't know you were there and you could light their shoes on fire or you could <laughs> you know so we would light their shoes on fire and then you'd hear somebody start making a siren noise and and then it just kind of keep building <laughs> up until they realized that somebody was on fire but uh, that was probably my favorite place to, to practical joke somebody was that the go-to prank, the, uh, the lighting the guy's shoes on fire? The hot foot, right? The hot foot, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you would, you know, you could build up, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the guys would use some hairspray to get it going a little quicker, or they would, uh, you know, take a piece of gum and, like, stick some, you know, paper in it so it would, like, be a pr- little bit bigger flame. But, yeah, we, we come up with some pretty good stuff. <laughs> well, now, why is it we never did kangaroo court? Did you guys do that early yeah, on? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did it, uh, you know, probably for a couple years, and then uh, – yeah, I, I think it kind of just, you know, um, worked its way out of the game a little bit, um, you know. But I, I can remember some pretty hefty fines back in the day. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Now, you know, at fantasy camp, that's the favorite part of the campers right. when we do that. Oh, but yeah. yet, we, at playing, I, I, there was not one time in my career that we had a fantasy, I mean, a uh, a uh, kangaroo court, which is kind of strange. But, yeah. yet, we do that in, in right. fantasy camp, and they thought, I think it probably still goes on today, but I don't think it does. Yeah, I think uh, – I'm trying to remember who I think TP was the judge at some point. So okay. we did it for a couple of years, but then yeah, I kind of just phased out. I think but mm. it's always a great time down there. Yeah, yeah, we do. Well, you know, Steve's one of our um, regulars at fantasy camp in January that we do for um, for about seventy people, and so S- Steve's on my um, social committee. So him and him and Pete Pete Smith are my social coordinators. So they do a great job with the campers and making sure they have a good time and. Um, and of course, you know he pitches, and we all have we'll have a pitching coach and a manager for each team, and we draft. So they draft the teams. Have you won any of them? Yeah, I've won two. Oh wow! Yeah. So two championships. Did right. you get a ring? Did uh, we give out rings at that point? I did get one ring, and oh, I nice. got one watch. Oh, nice! So, yeah, got a nice. nice little mixture of hardware. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh, you know alum, alumni events and everything, the other week during alumni weekend, we had the home run derby. Mm-hmm. Now everybody and I sit up in the in the press box during during games, and I get, you know, everybody kind of had uh, your opposition. Right. I'm not saying there were any formal bets taken up there, but there were some friendly, perhaps some friendly wagers that right. were taken. I had the inside track that you were that 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 you can you can mash. So right. I I was I was you know I was all in on your team, and I was proven right. Now and I may. May have ended up losing in an elimination there, but um, but uh, is that uh, how much? Well, just how much fun was that? First of all, oh, it was great. I uh, you know I had a great time with it. Um, Frenchie kind of got going a little bit the night before, talking a little smack, and uh, so we <laughs> took it probably a little more serious than we should have. But um, I just couldn't believe how tiring it was to swing for probably what a minute and a half or a minute forty-five by the time you take the extra three. So um i was actually out of breath uh more than anything that's why it was tough to hit that that many but um you know it was a great time i told frenchy i mean he's actually a hitter so he's supposed to beat me plus he's 10 years younger so i don't i don't know why he was really bragging about beating me <laughs> well that that reminds me so back in the day we had competition among pitchers yeah so we had pitchers bp which we only got to take at home and um we ended up making it the relievers versus the the starters right right so we had some pretty good competition now you would think 
if you listen to Smolty all the time, that we never had a chance. Right. But you guys didn't beat us every time. Yeah, I mean, 99% of the time. No, but you guys had some big guys. I mean, you know, relievers were actually probably bigger than, you know, yeah, Marvin Freeman used to hit mm-hmm. a lot of home runs. And, uh, you know, Merck. Merck, Merck was yeah, good. Yeah, Merck could hit. So um, I don't remember you ever putting a ball in play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was. Because I had Pat Corrales pitching to me. Yeah. That was a problem. Yeah. He, that was the pitcher's fault. 40 miles an hour. Uh, yeah. He threw to all of us, but it was bad. <laughs> yeah, he would drill. He would drill at least two or three of us every time. <laughs> but, uh, no, it was. In, and that kind of everything we did was competitive. I mean, even those, we, we took serious. I mean, we, we tried to get better, and we tried to, uh, you know, kind of push each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. It was, uh, you know, we got a lot out of it, even though it was just for fun too. Those were certainly the highlights. Oh yeah, being able to being able to just take batting practice was fun. And then when I went to New York with the Mets, we they actually took it serious, and we had the hitting coach would actually work with us, right? Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. CJ didn't, he would never work with us. <laughs> CJ was sleeping. <laughs> is that part of the game? Just the, the the kind of the fun stuff off the field. Is that do you guys miss that uh, equally, or perhaps even more than the game itself? Or what is the part? If you think I, if somebody were to ask you, you know, what do you miss most about playing? What what, what would it be? Uh, for me, it's definitely that part of it. Just uh, you know, when I come down here, I kind of get a little taste. I mean, I play golf with Charlie and Glavin and and Chipper and Smoltz and you know all the guys in the the events for Andrew and the, and the Braves events. So um, for me, you know, Smoltzy was a, a golf coordinator. Um, he had a little black book, and we played the nicest courses in the country. Um, you know, but it kept guys from sitting around the hotel room. I mean, we were up early every day. You know, kind of getting some work in. Um, you know, and, and did keep us, you know, competitive too. I mean, we, we took it serious. And, uh, um, so to me that part was, uh, and then if you had a bad game, you know, you gotta get, got it out of your system by going to play golf the next day rather than sitting in your room sulking. So, um, you know, it was just a great way to, to get away from the field a little bit and, and, uh, you know, bond with your teammates. Well, and that is the good thing about being in Atlanta with 65 alumni here. We do a lot of stuff together and I've, I've been trying to get Oh, I've at least been talking to Ava about, hey, what do you think about moving down here? I finally convinced Marvin to move down here, which was great. Um, yeah. He's been loving it. But I told Steve, I said, you know, aren't you sick of that snow and come down here and do some work with us? So right. he's got one more kid. Maybe when uh, and Owen's uh, graduated, maybe he'll yep. think about moving down. Four yeah. more years of uh, purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks again to former Braves pitcher Steve Avery for joining us here on Behind the Braves. Greg, now that the World Series is over, just ended a couple nights ago, the offseason is just now officially getting started for everybody. For some, for a lot of teams, it obviously already started a couple weeks ago. But now it's it's officially started. So as a player, when, when the offseason first starts, and I'm sure everybody kind of has their, their different routines and things that they do, but for you as a player, when the season was over, what was your – your first thing that you did, or I'm assuming most everybody's going to do something relaxing, but what was kind of your mindset and what you were first doing when the season was over with? Well, I can kind of relate a little bit to the guys coming off the World Series because they are emotionally, physically drained from not only a long season, but also a long postseason. Even though it didn't go game seven, they were still, they actually, you know, they played one, two games in one, the 18 inning game. Sure. So I'm sure those guys are not going to do anything, pick up a ball, work out. I mean, they they may stay in shape. They may not. I know that me personally, I had to have a month off where I just did nothing. And then I didn't want to – but you didn't want to take too much time off because then, you know, you got to – you got to – you know, it takes a while to get back into shape. 
so a month it was a pretty good appropriate time and then you start you know lifting and working out and kind of preparing setting your sights on when you might throw setting the schedule I didn't wait too long I'd start picking up a ball in December some point playing catch and then I wouldn't get up off the mound until January I would imagine that that's not a bad schedule uh, if you're if you're trying to make a team then uh, you may be coming you may be coming from winter ball which goes all the way up until the end of January if you're pretty if you're pretty confident in your position and you're in a long-term contract or you've had a good year you probably be in a schedule where you're just going to be prepared to be ready to go when you hit spring training you know years ago guys would use spring training to get ready now that started changing when I came into the league in the early 90s that you didn't see that a whole lot guys really came to spring training prepared and ready to make the team and I think that's probably pretty much the mindset nowadays I think the guys may be you know throwing more they may be working out more you know we put emphasis on working out but if probably if you look at our throwing schedule and our workout schedule it's probably not as intense as it probably is nowadays because these guys are ripped I mean they're they're diets and and all the kind of things that they're doing we were just starting to get into that but I would imagine it's a little bit more but as far as just picking up a ball some of them they may throw less just because the kind of the culture of baseball now is that because they're exerting so much energy when they do throw they don't throw as much in between so so that could be a little bit different but I know that that's really important to kind of get your mind away from the game for at least a month or two, you know, a month and a half or whatever, just to kind of what, what I would call is, is unwinding. So it's like whenever you twist a rubber band up. Remember those little toy planes that we used to get when we were mm-hmm. kids? And you'd wind the propeller and the, the rubber band would all knot up underneath and then you'd let it go and go, <laughs> you know. And that that's kind of what it feels like at the end of the season. You know, you're all knotted up and, and wound up, and then all of a sudden you need some time to, to, to really unwind. And it's a good time to do that around it all through November and, and then start thinking a little bit about, you know, what you need to do to get ready starting in December. Was there a time for you where you were started to get the itch of just wanting to be back out there? Not necessarily how your body felt, but just mentally you're ready to be back out there or, or was or was or was it just now spring training gets here, then I'll, then I'll have Yeah, I, I don't think I ever got that feeling until about midway through spring training. Okay. That's when you really are saying, okay, I'm tired of this getting up at, you know, six thirty, seven o'clock and, and playing a game. As a reliever, it didn't take me long to get prepared. As a starting pitcher, it took longer because you just you can't you can't simulate what it means to throw. Of course, you know, we were trying to throw seven, eight, nine innings. It's a little different nowadays. So it took time to build up your body, you know, uh, to get ready to do that. So you needed all spring training as a starter. As a reliever you didn't. You know, I was I was getting, going anywhere from one inning to three innings, so it didn't take me. I didn't need six weeks of spring training. I needed about three to four. So that last, those last couple weeks uh, of spring training, really, they're they're overkill for a reliever. And so that's when you get the itch to, hey, I'm ready to change, train, change the weather. I'm ready to change the location. And, and I'm ready to get on with the season because these last two weeks are just not – they're not – Let's pack up and head north. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they do me no good. Yeah. I was ready to go. And then especially if you come in spring training ready to go, you really only need probably three weeks of just game, you know, game time. Well, speaking from the, the diehard fan perspective, um, this is these are exciting times, particularly if you're a Braves fan, because now that the offseason is here, if you're a diehard fan, the offseason can be at times – 
depending on how much time you want to dedicate to being on Twitter and MLB trade rumors and wherever else and following all the beat writers, like the rumors and everything are, are a lot of fun. Well, it, they can be a lot of fun. It depends on which side of the, the coin your, your team is on. I'd say this offseason, Braves country, this is about as exciting of a time as we've had. I, I a decade, two decades maybe, as far as what we, we know what the, or we kind of generally have an idea of what the, the assets that the team has that the, and the capital, both in prospects and, and payroll, that, that Alex in the, in the front office can go make some very, very significant moves this offseason. And we're all – I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here and saying we're all expecting that there's going to be some very significant moves made. We don't know. It could be free agency. could be via trade. We, we have no idea. But the the idea of – we know there's going to be something. It's a really, really exciting time. It was, it was cool. I was looking on Twitter the other, the other day the, from the official Braves account. They tweeted, you know, there are 150 days until opening day 2019, right? <laughs> That's just the thing you do yeah. right after the World Series. Right. But what was really cool to see was in the replies to that tweet from fans, just the optimism and the enthusiasm. I mean, everybody is just fired up because it's like, all right, we're coming off this awesome 2018. And the expectation, and I think it's a very reasonable one, is that we're – the team on paper that we that we ended uh, this season with against the Dodgers here in the NLDS is going to there's going to be an improved version of that team come opening day 2019. Nothing's guaranteed, injuries and everything else can happen. So I'm, I'm not putting the 100% guarantee on it, but I think it's very reasonable to expect that um, opening day 2019 is going to be a, a very very exciting um, time for us in Braves country. So the the off season is here, but it's it's baseball season's year round for yeah. fans, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think the only thing that can hurt us from a an excitement standpoint is if they do nothing. Yeah. I right. mean, if Alex and them decide that, hey, we're we're good, we like the way guys are developing, we're just going to go with what we have, I think there will be a little bit of letdown. I don't anticipate that happening. Of course, I don't know. I don't work in the front office with, you know, on the baseball side. But um, I anticipate that those guys are busy. They're trying to figure out what's the best – game plan or they probably already have game plan but i'm sorry what the what's best plan of action because obviously you can have a plan but if if things aren't available if teams aren't willing to trade or if those free agents sign quickly or if those free agents don't want to come here which i don't know why they wouldn't but um but you can't control those things but you can create a plan and i guarantee you that we got some smart guys up there they know exactly what what they want they know who they want and it's kind of like going into the draft. You know, you got plan A, B, and C, and D. And as when this guy comes off the board, you go to your next, you know, your next guy on the list. And so I, we know they're busy up there. We know that they have a plan. And I think we're all anticipating uh, what that, you know, how that unfolds. And we're going to get a taste of that when we go to the winter meetings, which you and I are excited about. Number one, we get to go to Las Vegas. That doesn't uh, suck. <laughs> <laughs> that's my official Seven analysis. Good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the first good thing. The second thing is we, we're going to be right in the middle of it, so we hope something huge happens so that we can get them on behind the Braves. But at a minimum, we've got some alumni out there that uh, we're going to be able to pull on. We won't say exactly um, who or, or who that might be, but – we're going to do our best to, to have some have some good times at, out at the winter meeting. So I think we're all looking forward to that. I know you and I are because we think that, that there's a, could, there could be something fun happening. Uh, definitely. We can't wait to get out there. Um, another thing to look forward to uh, coming up on Behind the Braves later this month, Rico Cardi. Hmm. Uh, we, you know, we'll get more into it, obviously, when that episode gets here. But I, I've been – since we started this this project, you know, 
we've gosh we've been going six seven episodes now however many it's been um but i've been telling people all along because we interviewed rico back during the, the season when he was visiting here in atlanta i've been telling people i can't wait for you to hear this one because i think for a lot of people it's going to it's going to have the same impact on them that it did me and that he's a guy as a Braves fan. He was pretty far b- before my time as a, just a, not even just as a baseball fan Mine on the too. earth. Mine on too, yours, it, yeah, it was a year before <laughs> your time too. So he was just a guy like I, I'd heard the name. I've, I've seen the baseball cards, but I really didn't know much about him and sitting down. First of all, when we knew we were going to get him doing, doing some research on his career, I was like, well, this is interesting stuff here. And then, None of that though could, could prepare me for how interesting he was in person, just to talk to, and um, and his amazing voice too. By the way, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty pretty spectacular voice. He needs to be doing voiceover work if he isn't already. <laughs> but uh, we're really excited for for later this month for you to hear Rico Cardi. Yeah, Rico was a, was a great interview, and it really for me being the alumni um, director, just being able to get to know him, spend some time with him. Of course, he was here a couple of days, got to meet his family, met. Um, Met him, spent some time talking with him, and and since then we've we've talked on the phone. But yeah, big personality, big man too. He is, yeah. As he as he tells you, hey, th- this arm never lifted a weight. Is what he, right. he told yep. me. Yep. And uh, we've got some. We'll we'll have some good stories with him. But then um, we'll. Uh, I think you guys will will agree that it was very interesting, and, and it'll be a lot of fun with Rico. Looking forward to to you guys being able to hear that. And in the meantime, if you haven't already hit that subscribe button, please do that. If you haven't already given us a positive review, please do that. If you think you've been thinking about giving us a bad review, please don't do that. <laughs> uh, you can hit the five star rating, and also just tell your friends about us. You know, share it on your Instagram story or, or whatever, and just to tell tell folks about us because I think overall the feedback we've gotten has been tremendous Braves fans really seem to be enjoying it which is obviously our goal here we want to we want you guys to enjoy this show and enjoy getting to know personalities of the Braves past and present so uh you know tell a friend well um we like constructive criticism right they can always uh, give us some of that or no I don't know I don't know if my no? ego can handle oh, okay it. Yeah. well no I do I do <laughs> I actually do I I think it's good it's been uh it, I've actually heard from friends who are also dired fans who have uh, texted me or whatever and given me honest feedback, and they overall love it, but then they, they'll say, well, what about this, this, or they'll just have suggestions. And hmm. another thing, you know, I've had people say, can you get can you get such and such on the show? I'd really love to hear them on here. Oh, I know go. one friend of mine is pretty much sending at least one text per week demanding that we get Ron Washington on. So, oh, really? Yeah, okay. So. Well, you know, and some they got to realize that some of these guys, we – we are planning to do that during yes. the season. It's a lot easier to get with those guys during the season than the off season. Much like a lot of players, they don't live in Atlanta. Right. And we like to be able to do our show here in Atlanta, even though we are going on some road trips and, you know, we're going to go to Las Vegas. But for the most part, we're here in the Alumni Lounge at SunTrust Park. We like it. It's great. It's a great atmosphere for the guys to relax. So we have scheduled, you know, some of those guys for this next season, and we hope to get coaches on players on as well as you know continue to have key alumni on absolutely so we're bigger and better things in the future behind the braves this is like i said we're not going away this is uh something we hope to keep building and keep going for a very long time and we are very appreciative for you for for joining us on this ride from the very beginning so that being said for greg mcmichael i'm ricky mast and we will see you next time on behind the braves
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 